visibilizing um, queerness or transness is simply just to say that we exist. But also I think the real work is about um, creating methodologies for people to see beyond the politics of, of recognition. I mean, maybe that's answer to your previous question about what, what, what do we do? What do we do about it? Welcome to Satellizer Conversations, an audio series that seeds encounters and conversations between people coming at topics from different perspectives and orientations, many of whom have never met before. The conversations are based on the lockdown online discursive rehearsal process of Satellizer, a dance for the gallery, a durational performance in which artists cooperate to maintain conversations whilst dancing over the course of a day as co-workers. These conversations reflect intimacies across distances that many of us have experienced through the whole of the project. I'm Janine Harrington, a UK-based artist and leader of the Satellizer project across live shows, the podcast series, and an online publication, satellizing.com. You can find more information about me by following at inside.i on Instagram or at www.janineharrington.com. Satellizer conversations are recorded and edited by Rowan Udall at Siobhan Davies Studios, with music composed by Jamie Forth and graphics created by John Philip Sage. The Satellizer project is produced by Zarina Rosshart and I. In this episode, Satellizer co-worker Elena Rose Light meets JJ Chan and June Lam. Their conversation dances through many ideas and experiences, including ambiguity and time, choreographies of law and protest, plurality and shift in identification across spaces, refusal, joy, and locating the role and positionality of the artist in relation to expectations, institutions, and codes. JJ Chan is an artist who works across sculpture, moving image, and writing. Their work draws from lived experience and stories stolen from eavesdropped conversations to explore the edges of our everyday realities and the ways in which we construct our identities. June Lam is a community organiser and multidisciplinary artist of Chinese and Vietnamese ancestry living in London. He works across performance, dance, sculpture and collage with practices that seek to challenge white colonial desirability optics and locate gender-expansive possibilities for pleasure and joy as a queer East Asian femme trans man. Elena Rose Light is a white, trans, non-binary choreographer and performer originally from Southern California, Mechanican, currently living in Berlin, Germany. Their creative practice is rooted in the potential of anti-racist, queer and non-binary somatics to reorganise systems of thought and social codes. So, hello. <laughs> Where do we begin? 
Um, should we introduce ourselves? I feel like that might make sense. Yeah, we yeah. could do. And I wonder maybe also if we could talk because the invitation kind of came mm. a certain way then. Mm. And so Elena, I imagine, Elena, you invited June and then is that how it works? And then June, you invited me. And so it, it was this kind of process. Or was it not quite like that? Sort of. I, I kind of came to Janine with like a loose idea of like an experience in Satellizer um, and was like, I want to, yeah, have a conversation around trans identity or like, I don't know, like existing and holding multiple truths. And then Janine mentioned that she had met June in a workshop, I think. Very briefly. Um, so I feel like, yeah, I feel like my interactions with Janine until now have been quite fleeting, actually. But um, she got enough of a sense of my interest, maybe from following my work, mm-hmm. to invite me onto this. And uh, yeah, it was a really pleasant surprise. So, because I, I had thought that maybe you had known each other for some time. No, that's what's interesting. I think that, well, to me, this feels, and I'm, I am realizing I haven't, COVID limits this in a way, but like this kind of intimate conversation among strangers is in a way what we're doing, kind of. And <laughs> I've, I think that's, yeah, I've been surprised actually about of how out of practice I feel at that. Yeah, same. Yeah. Yeah, we've, well, we've not had any opportunity to like practice this thing that like is quite natural, actually. Going into spaces and then you, there's someone you don't know and you'd like to make a connection or talk about something that you maybe saw together. So maybe that leads us into our intros. Mm-hmm. So we're kind of meeting each other for the first time. Do you want to start, JJ? I can start. So... Let me tell you a bit about what I do then, I suppose. I'm, I'm an artist or I do certain activities. That means some people call me an artist and um, other people don't. But I think of myself as an artist. I think about everything that I do as an artist. Other people might also think of me as a, as a teacher, uh, as um, as an antagonist, uh, as a... Um, uh, also, perhaps um, I am someone who maybe is known for um, withdrawing myself from um, exhibitions rather than having them. So um, the last two years have been a lot of that kind of forming uh, of activities around what it what it what it is to be an artist, and some of those activities don't really. Um, are not usually part of an artist's resume. So I still, I hold on to the title so that I can try to reshape what um, what the definition is. And I think I also do that for other, um, let's say titles um, that we might allocate for one another. So yeah, that's maybe what I do. Um, what are the things that are kind of biographical things that I would tell you if I was meeting you for the first time. I'm from Doncaster. I I grew up there. I was born there. I moved out when I was 18. I went to art school. I've been one of those people who have never left art school. I spent my whole adult life either studying or 
or working in art schools. Um, and now, now I'm here, um, I'm based at Kingston School of Art and I see what I do there also as part of my art practice. I'm making something, create, trying to create something, trying to figure something out. That's um, being what I've been doing. So, yeah. Who's next? I can be next. Um, but I just wanted to ask, whereabouts is Doncaster? Um... So Doncaster is um, in South Yorkshire, um, about halfway up the country. Uh, near Sheffield it's about a half an hour drive oh, from Sheffield okay so it's pretty it's quite pretty yeah it's an ex-mining town um, there's lots of open space um, there's um, I'm from a, a village called uh, Carcroft which uh, where my parents had a Chinese takeaway and uh, that's where that's where I grew up and it's largely very similar to how it was when I was when I was growing up there so. Is this my only reference for Yorkshire? I went to Haworth to see the Bronte sisters mm -hmm. play. Is it like near there or similar landscape or? Hi, it's near-ish. I mean, things feel a lot closer there because you can drive across Yorkshire in, a, in a, an hour and a half and it takes you about the same amount of time to get from um, across town in London. So things feel a lot closer. Um, but also the landscape changes quite dramatically from village to village. Um, and the community changes quite dramatically from village to village. And maybe also it does here in London from one area of town to another area of town. So, um, yeah, I wouldn't say it was similar landscape, um, but maybe there is a, a certain kind of, um, a certain kind of connection with the, uh, with the environment that people um, feel when when they're born into a place, that it feels also part of their identity. Uh, those um, more well-known aspects of a of a of a place, um, and it's quite unusual, I think, because also Yorkshire is a very um, patriotic place, and um, and I grew up feeling very much like uh, it was part of my identity and that that when I left Yorkshire it was very difficult for people to recognize that um, this sense of Yorkshireness was there or maybe in my voice when I spoke but um, it was a kind of quirk I suppose. Shall I introduce myself? <laughs> Yeah, okay. Um, no, I, I was just thinking about what you were saying about art being an artist. And um, even though I spent a lot of years in art school, I don't know if I still have that relationship to the word because, I mean, I, I could potentially try to define everything I do as art, but I don't know if that's something that feels productive for me or, like, fulfilling in, in like, I, I don't um, know what the purpose of that would be. Um but uh, I would say some of what I do is art um, and occasionally act and um, run club nights and uh, perform um, and write things. 
and work in nightlife as well. But um, yeah, so I I, th I think I'm I'm struggling with having a very like sort of uh, linear or clear sense of um, self to present. <laughs> I find these kinds of um, situations difficult because I think um, in previous sort of versions of myself, I have um, really tried to steer everything back to being an artist and I'm kind of resistant to that at the moment as well. Uh, yeah, I think I'm finding it difficult to uh, clearly define one kind of thing that I do that's more important than the other things or try and make it all make sense together in a way that feels concrete. Um, so I don't know if all of the threads have to connect even. Um, I feel that I'm really motivated by whatever it is, is um, driving my attention in that moment, which is, um, I think, a very ADHD trait, but it does allow me to kind of um, not really think very much before uh, taking on a new hyphen sometimes, which is, which is nice because I think there's a sort of element of like, I'd probably doubt myself if I was thinking about it because of um, maybe not having enough experience or that's not my field of, you know, study or whatever. So, yeah, I feel like this year I've actually done more acting than art, but then I don't really know what art is and what acting is. I don't really know. I think it's kind of hard to define things really. So that was quite rambly, um, but yeah, I think I'm like someone that does creative projects a lot and works with people a lot and um, I like to I like to use my words and my body in most of the things that I do and I like to work with um, different types of communities um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I'm from Australia but um, I feel like I've lived here enough that I don't feel like that's a big part of my identity anymore, but it definitely is. How long have you been in London? About six years. And where were you in Australia before? Uh, Melbourne, Sydney. Hmm. Well, I can take the baton. <laughs> um, I really relate to what you said, June, about, yeah, trying to like condense what I do into language in this introductory format or like I'm remembering how I used to get so much anxiety like trying to explain what I do to like my parents friends in Southern California and I used to say like oh I, or I still do this sometimes like I make I make dance and they're like, oh, people always ask what kind of dance. And then I'm like, oh, like the kind that goes in museums because somehow that was like the easiest way to get across the element of experimentation or like non-normativity in dance. And so somehow, I, yeah, that feels like a way to describe what I do even though I haven't actually really ever made a piece for a museum or a gallery because of my circumstances in New York in many ways, but I, I've performed in many of those. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I think a lot of the ways I self-define are changing actually, right? Like now and during the pandemic. And um, 
I like to write. I love to perform. I love to dance. And I used to make a lot of solo work and now I'm really figuring out how to work with others, how to share what I do. Um, I also, for my, my money job for many years has been tutoring and helping high schoolers apply to college in the US. And somehow, um, yeah, I love teaching and I'm trying to figure out how to be both a student and a teacher. Um, and maybe more practically, like I grew up in Southern California, just north of Los Angeles. I have an identical twin. Um, and then I studied French, I like did classical ballet and then I studied French literature and, and art history at university. And then now I've, then I lived in New York for six years. Then I moved to do a master's degree in, in choreography and performance just north of Frankfurt. Um, so that's my like practical bio, but somehow it doesn't actually, that's how I used to also speak to what was important to me. And I think more and more, I'm like, that doesn't accurately reflect like the meat of my bodily experience. I think it's interesting that this the introduction feels so difficult and perhaps maybe the maybe it will be we will show to be the most difficult part of the conversation but i think also i really enjoyed that we started at first to talk about a kind of sense of jet lag from the last couple of years and i think it's worth us saying when we're thinking about um language and how it doesn't sit quite neatly with our sense of reality, that, um, that it, it's really obvious that we don't share one time, that we exist in a kind of plurality of temporalities and that, we, that they coexist with other temporalities that sure might be entangled and they might be mutually implicating, but they're, they're not uniform. So they are in fact, quite chaotic, they're disorganized. And, and so this uh, unneatness then comes to meet a very neat kind of language, a language that um, has words or, um, or things like ways that we define ourselves, our pronouns, and somehow they try to, they try to coexist and they can't quite hold all of these realities together. And so, I think what might be important in what we've just said is actually these moments where we're like, oh, we don't quite know. These um, ambiguous moments of our introduction are maybe the most valuable ones because that's where there can be these um, pluralities of, of the way that we speak. And June, you were saying about the hyphen as this, uh, as this mm. kind of method of enabling ambiguity. And I think that um, starts to allow us also to think about an ambiguity of, of time between us, um, which is a kind of limited resource, um, or at least we kind of think about that as a limited resource in the societies that we participate in. And, um, and maybe it's not, maybe it's, some, it, maybe it's a perception that it is that. And instead we could think about how we can reallocate uh, this 
ambiguity towards other modes of thinking as well. So thinking about our work, our labor, things mm. that we do, things that, we, that define us. And then we can, I mean, maybe if we think about it in relationship to dance, that our dance may be something that is in a, in a present moment, something that may be responding to things that um, are immediate, but that our thinking in relation to dance happens much later in the future. So we can think ahead into the future, but be dancing in the present somehow. And somehow this activation of the body is uh, future thinking, that it thinks beyond the um, restrictions of our language now, or the restrictions of the way that we think about time. This con the whole concept of a jet lag is that, uh, that we are behind on something that our body needs to catch up or our body needs to slow down because it somehow doesn't conform to the way that everybody else is living their lives. And that this is also how the pandemic has made us feel um, that somehow we are um, now um, not living our lives some, towards some kind of like normative way of behaving because our sense of time has shifted and yeah, I don't really know what I was saying there, but I suppose I was trying to find a way to um, also understand why this was, it felt quite difficult uh, for all of us. Yeah, it felt validating. <laughs> but I also, and I also like, there was something about um, your introduction that for me was both like very certain about the, 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 the sort of the artist as this like, his, um, his title, but also the way in which you spoke about it was like very much like, well, I'm going to find a way to relate everything back to this. And it's almost like a philosophy. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, which, which feels maybe affirming for, I don't know, like all the ways in which um, we have self-doubt about like withdrawing from exhibitions or not being in enough shows or um, the, the lack of doing that we do. Yeah. I think it's interesting though to think about that lack as some actually something that is quite um active um something right. that is um is certainly a gesture uh and a gesture that may be quite um visible maybe more so than uh, than other kinds of gestures sometimes a gesture of withdrawal um or silence sometimes we recognize actually to be very loud a very loud gesture of our bodies to withhold our speech because we think that that is um, something that um, is um, an act that people will will um, acknowledge to see um, and that speech is not always something that is heard that is making me think about how, or just in terms of gender, like I often have this desire if someone were to ask me, like, like one time someone came up to me randomly in the subway and asked me, how do you identify? And I was like, whoa. But in that moment, it, I kind of wanted to be like, like I somehow wanted to, I'm, I'm, I'm shrugging my shoulders and putting my hands up like what? Because I wanted to make a gesture or like deny 
I don't know. I often feel that way now too. Like I want to somehow reject the paradigm of language and like reject. Yeah. Like not have to say something. And I've been thinking about that lately as a kind of conscientious objection, like as a kind of um, like, yeah, rejection of the terms themselves, which is somehow what's so challenging about language and kind of relates what you were saying about time, JJ, like, because language emerges in time, it's really hard to access simultaneity. And it's like really hard to access, like, I don't know, the messiness that my body can actually inhabit. Um, so lately I'm feeling really, yeah, like, like wanting, it's funny how much now I'm like, God, my body actually can't so much express even in this conversation, that's going to be an audio recording. Um, and I feel like I want to spend most of my time expressing out of that place. Um, while at the same time, loving articulation and feeling like, oh no, in order to counteract that, I need to like speak and write all the time so that every different contradictory thought can somehow be articulated and therefore, I don't know, work to do some something towards that kind of uh, contradiction. I suppose there's a kind of pressure, there's a, there's a pressure. It's not a, and I, I say pressure because I want to make, make, uh, make clear that I don't mean a desire because there is a pressure to um, conform to a certain definition of uh, these words, artist, for example, that that somehow defines a set of activities uh, that you do. And, um, my attempt to cling on to that title is to say actually that the that there is space for the for this to shift that that I'm not an I'm not attempting to synchronize my activities with a predefined set of roles that somebody who uh, is creative does and I think this is um, why I why I hold on to the title of artist so fiercely despite the fact that I'm a lot of the things that I do don't produce things that people might immediately think of as artworks. Um, that somehow their their um, presence in the world happens in other in other ways. Um, maybe they happen in through conversation or a joke or you know a, a protest. But these are things that are manifest through um, a creative way of thinking that I associate with. Um, this term artist and perhaps the things that people might associate with what artists do making drawings photographs sculptures that that those um, modes of art practice um, now have become so nor normalized that they lack uh, an ability to be creative in to a full extent and so I don't know if um, I, I, I certainly think that not everybody who makes sculptures, for example, thinks of themselves necessarily as an artist. They might think of themselves as a craftsperson, or maybe even just somebody who, maybe just somebody who who makes lots of stuff, um, things that they might not perceive to be in art galleries. Maybe they they should be elsewhere. 
but that they think of them as sculptures. So I think that there is this kind of rigidity um, of um, the way that we segregate disciplines. Um, but I also think that that is really something that uh, has been occurring in not in the way that we necessarily think about what we do, but throughout society in all different sectors. And I think in even now as um, now as trans bodies become more visibilized in uh, different areas of society, that there is um, there is a kind of um, falseness to that representation that somehow that the that there is a shift in the word but not in the definition of what we come to think of as uh, equality or um, or collectivity I think certainly like my gender nonconformity at least in the art school throughout my whole time in the art school I think is something that is permissible because the art school is open, it's generous, it's accepting of everyone, but it's not really acknowledged. And neither is my, my racialized body. It's not acknowledged. It's not the knowledge that comes with being in this body is not acknowledged to the same extent as other kinds of knowledges, like industry knowledge or something. So um, I think that representation or recognition and those spaces is um, not quite what we think it is, if that makes sense. It's interesting that we've kind of spoken a bit about two types of silence, mm. the um, kind of liberatory silence of Elena not like responding to this question and then the silence of like race and transness or gender nonconformity not being voiced and that being a form of like oppressiveness and violence. I, I don't know, it's just like kind of thought it'd be an interesting question. <laughs> like, how do we use silence and how is it kind of wielded against us? I, yeah, I think it's, it's, um, I think there are, that it's, a, it's a, we can think about silence as a kind of method, um, right, of, um, of withdrawing um, our, mm. um, labor or our, or our ideas and that that can be acted upon us as well that makes us visible or invisible and both of those in different contexts are kinds of um, could be both um, an act of care but also can sometimes be an act of violence and so our movements within different contexts also have to be different our activities are changed depending on who we're interacting with. And this is the, this should be the case for everybody. This should be the case that we are adaptable, that our bodies have um, ways of moving that can offer different kinds of um, affection and, and um, different kinds of resistance in different situations. But that um, trying to articulate that means that it somehow flattens uh, what we do. And this is why I think of the term artist as, as useful to me, because I think there's still enough ambiguity within that term to hold um, all sorts of things. And people tend to accept the fact that they don't have to understand 
uh, what an artist does. They can, you know, they can yes. say, oh, I can, I, yeah, sure, it's art, but I don't understand it. I don't get it. But it's, I'm okay. It's art. I get, I, I, I'll accept that at least. And so there's something, I think, still within um, the way that we can define something as art that allows it to be all sorts of different things. And also, I think, perhaps offers it, um, it becomes a kind of invitation when you make something an artwork because it, it, an artwork demands an audience. So if you come to a protest and you think about that participation as an artwork, you're asking for an audience, a public audience. It's not a directed towards um, just a particular group of people, but you're asking for that moment to be public and that then you approach it differently because you don't know who's going to see it. You don't know who's going to interact with it. And so your offering to the world is slightly different to if you had this frustration or anger towards a particular thing that you needed to direct. Hmm. That's interesting what you like this idea of the artwork as, as, implying the audience or implying the witness because I'm I've been feeling a lot lately or I'm I'm now realizing a lot of the ways that I um become my wisest self or like the best version of myself even interpersonally um even as I like go through this messy breakup I'm like wow it's when I it's when I consider myself as a creative being it's like when I think about myself as an artist when I'm thinking like you know um and I think actually I've been I've been sometimes judging that in myself like why do I need to imagine a public witness to be um acting according to my deepest value systems like why do I need why do I need that but somehow it also feels for me, like a kind of spiritual practice, like I'm actually being witnessed by something greater than myself. And so to imagine that there's, yeah, a whole um, non-human human universe of witnesses who are paying attention to what I might do, even knowing that they might not, like it doesn't actually matter. It's somehow like that that construct, imagining that I might one day write about this experience, or I might one day incorporate it into my creative work, creates a level of like a self-accountability. Like it's actually a really, somehow I'm now realizing that my own self-accountability structures are really linked to being an artist. And I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm it's like an aha moment. <laughs> so what I'm kind of getting from this is that it's like a way of being in the world, but also relating to like, not necessarily other people, but like other stuff in the world. Because mm. <laughs> when I, when I, I, I guess like when I was kind of listening to Elena talk about that, I'm like, okay, that's like kind of similar to me thinking about ancestor practice and mm. thinking that's something that's important. And like, I'm not a lot of the stuff I like do for my own self-care or like maybe 
think about at the moment is not really like revolving around people that are like alive or in my life right now. So there must be this level of like that also meaning people that in the future or people that are in the past and those being witnesses as well. And that being part of the whole dynamic of like, yeah, having an audience. <laughs> don't know. I really, or I relate to that a lot, June. And I'm thinking, like, I'm just realizing I somehow, when I think earlier you were talking, JJ, I wanted to share this. There's a list. I just heard this talk with Elizabeth Povinelli, this anthropologist. And she shared this idea of the ancestral present, which she has gathered through living for like 30 years with Northern Australian indigenous folks. And this, it was just somehow I hadn't really swallowed this feeling until this talk she gave that the ancestral present is this way of really like, like feeling the present, it's such a simple idea, but it has such profound impact, at least in my body that like my ancestors are right here and I'm accountable to them and being witnessed by them. And so the way I act in the, and also I am an ancestor and, and, and projecting forward into the future beings. And mm-hmm. so that creates, she linked it to the climate crisis and that creates a real sense of like, yeah, accountability. How do we steward our land? How do we um, how do we exist in the present, acknowledging all of that past and that future? Somehow the way she languaged it made it be, made me be like, wow, this is like a really, this is kind of what I've been doing in other terms. Um, but the weight of that was also like, shit, I don't know. There's something really big in that, but it feels it's somehow that's what I feel like I'm hearing and what you're saying, June. But it's also kind of like a Christopher Nolan film, like, you know, like my future self does not like what I'm doing right now. So I'm not going to like steal this orange. You know? like, also, yeah, that's the micro version. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that's really interesting, I think, as well, that somehow we would um, we would act in, in ways that would um, preserve our intentions now for the future. And, and maybe one of the scariest things that I think I've heard people say a lot recently is this term future-proofing. What's that? Yeah, I've never heard that. Future-proofing is like, and maybe it's a kind of industry term, like a business term. And we, we hear it in universities because future-proofing is about making sure that there is longevity to your business. Um, so future-proofing is a set of like, activities and practices that make sure that that the organization lives long into the future and I find this really scary (laughs) because to future proof um, anything that is in the present that is a part of this moment is really um, to kind of know that the practice of future proofing I guess what I'm saying is a kind of attempt to incarcerate the body in the now and in doing that, we are limiting our, our, the possibility of thinking um, of other ways of being. And we recognize that this way of being, our participation in this kind of world is already creating and continues to create inequalities. And so 
to future proof the things that exist now, our, our intentions, our desires, the things that we care about is actually to future proof also those practices that come along with those things that are knotted and entangled together. And one of the things that, uh, one of the quotes that always comes into my mind is one by Leanne Nadu, who was one of the activists from the Rhodes Must Fall movement. And she said something, I'm probably gonna completely misquote her now, but she said something like, um, the pain of the present was um, being forced back into the present moment after having a premonition of a different one. And this is something that I think uh, haunts me quite often in my um, everyday activities, that the, the, the participation of um, the now is enforcing its stability. And we see that there are also other forces that are attempting to protect the stability of the now. And we can see that the proposal, for example, for the new um, police crime and sentencing bill is to limit our movements, the movements of our bodies to, that, that would uh, demand or create or imagine uh, some other way or possibility of living and instead is um, securing people's movements so as an attempt to secure what we currently have in place, the current way of being, a current way of being that uh, we know to be very problematic, to be painful, actually. I mean, and I'm thinking so many of our legislative structures are built, like I'm just thinking of the Supreme Court of the US. It's literally premised on exactly this kind of future proofing. You can install someone according to your views in a particular moment, and then they get to, in some ways, follow that, that mandate until they die. And then you have, like, it's, it's, I mean, even the US constitution operates that way. It's like, why do we still, why are we still basing our, our so much of our legislation and ways of existing on this old ass document, which, yeah, I mean, I'm also thinking that that the that idea feels really similar to the way to what I hear coming out of turfy rhetoric, like turfs being like, oh, but we we built a world so that you could inhabit our world, and it's like, but we don't want that world anymore, or, or we're, I don't know, we're different now, and they're like, no, but we. We built a world, like it's really, they somehow cannot accept that there would be a desire for different terms or different world making um, that goes beyond what they were. And, and that's why it's so personal because they're like in our, in that present, in that past present, then this was so the, this was so immediately what so many of us needed. And it's somehow shocking that that could change so radically. And yeah, I guess I'm, um, the, the word you used incarcerated in the present, JJ, feels so like it's such a trap to that mode of thinking. Like it's not, I don't know, it's not fluid. I wonder if, I mean, this maybe seems a bit trivial and, and you know, you can divert it if it's, if it's not somewhere where you want to go. But also I think maybe it's, it could be interesting to think about the law or, or our, um, 
legal structures as a form of choreography, something that is something very old, something that dictates our movements or the movements of bodies around a society, the way that um, perhaps is also beyond conscious decision-making, um, something that we uh, follow through, um, that we act in accordance to, that we react to, respond to, and that um, in this case then to improvise, to be creative, to respond to a moment becomes criminal. Makes a lot of sense. That, I just need to add that I was part of a project that like literally did this where we, a part of this collective called the Bureau for the Future of Choreography, where we staged a um, sitting of the US Senate to in kind of to reveal exactly all of the choreographic structures at play in our the US legislative system. And what I, I was not the lead on the project, but what I actually found in some ways so frustrating about the project ultimately was how confining the choreography of the Senate was. And as a collective, we couldn't agree on how much improvisation we wanted to allow the audience or how much we wanted to use our fictional space of performance to imbue it with greater improvisation than is allowed in real life. Cause we were like literally inviting the audience to like read roles like, oh, this Senator from Iowa stands up and has an assigned script. And every, it was like a participatory performance in this way. And I wanted there to be, I, I thought we should break all the rules. That should be the goal of the restaging. But some of my colleagues disagreed and, and I was kind of outnumbered ultimately. And so, yeah, I just said that it was such a concrete experience of that, of how um, if like, there's so little non-normativity in those structures. It's so impossible to do anything with the body or even, I mean, I could go into this in the US, but yeah, I, I just had such a concrete experience of that and how frustrating it was. Even in my like fictional restaging with this collective, I was frustrated for still that same reason. So it's only really outside of, no, if we can accept that that is the norm. I mean, that is the norm, right? We can't, I, I don't think we can claim the, um, any of our being in the world is considered the norm, but we can consider that the legislative structure as generally accepted as the normal way to behave in this in these societies. And so actually to be then, um, to recognize that creativity is, is really only possible outside of that norm. And I, is, is, I think this really is what, at least what I think of as, as queerness, Queerness is to um, seek uh, a position that is beyond or not recognized as normativity. And the reason why you would seek that is because you're looking for something to, for a space where you can create something else, something that might, um, that might feel uh, appropriate to your reality because that you that doesn't exist in the normative structures, and I find, I think that actually I would go as far as to say that the majority of people would think that the normative way of living in our societies is not appropriate for their bodies. I would hope that's the case. Like right, and I, 
Or people are in a fugue state. Um, <laughs> yeah, but what, what I'm hearing from all of this is that, like, queerness is improvisation, which I love. I think that's really beautiful. Mm-hmm. As queerness is a form of improvising in response to restrictive structures where we have to do the same choreography mm-hmm. and mm. uh, until we die. Yeah, it's a refusal to synchronize. We were talking briefly mm. about synchronization yeah. and jet lag earlier. It's a refusal for that. It's to remain in the jet lag in a way. <laughs> <laughs> Which, I mean, if you carry that metaphor forward, I'm like, because I was just thinking, God, I wish that were more fun. You know, like I, when I don't <laughs> right. recalibrate from the jet lag, I start to feel miserable. And in some ways that's yeah. what it can be to be you know non-normative in a in a dominant world but it can also then it can feel trippy and amazing you know mm-hmm. there's that sarah shulman quote about um families and how um often the uh formative families feel like their queer children are rejecting or pushing away we're standing still and they're pushing against us actually and i think that's quite I don't know, I think it relates a bit to what we're talking about now. Like it's not, there is this idea from um, from norm- the normative world or the non-queer world that queer people are, you know, charging against, but like what if we're standing still and everyone else is kind of moving mm. in a different direction? Mm. Yeah, I mean, as you say that, June, I just have such an acute experience of like, having an identical twin who is cis and straight and owns homes and like is very living a more normative life. And then I have sometimes been positioned as like, yeah, that, that like rebel, the person rebelling against or like Mm. that she fits into my nuclear family structure. And then I'm the weird one. And lately I have felt a certain release of that in my little family where as I don't know, because of the pandemic, I think, and because of like some mental health crises and certain challenges, there's been this sense of like, Oh no, actually Elena's just been acknowledging all the confusion of what it is to exist. And we can too. (laughs) And like my mom got a therapist, you know, it was like somehow, (laughs) Yeah, I could feel a shift in that. And I was like, oh my God, this is what I hope for everyone. Like it's so, it was pretty magical to see that, that kind of release sense or this sense of not pushing towards like, you know, the cruel optimism thing and just being with the challenge. I don't know. I I felt it really play out among my family members. I'm feeling that change and it's Oh, nice. I come. It comes back to the gesture of silence. I think it comes back to the sort of like, you know, the the how um, it's a creative act to stand still while everyone is pushing towards cruel optimism. You know, in in a in a time where like there is a lot going on that's oppressive, and actually sometimes the best response is to reflect or to sort of like take stock. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, maybe we could also think about this along with uh, Fred Moten's idea of brokenness and that um, Moten asks us to um, accept um, or reconcile with this essential brokenness. And um, 
and that that is to to say that um, we know things are broken, we're broken, um, and that our um, intentions in the broken is not to find a fix, but is in fact to say that things don't need fixing, because fixing implies that it's a resynchronization to something that we um, don't agree with or that we think is um, troublesome. So to fix something or to renormatize something, normalize something is a, a problematic in itself. And so instead it's about remaining in this space where we um, acknowledge one another's um, or our systems or things as broken. And this is a space of creativity. This is a space of improvisation. This is a space where the rules can't tell us what to do anymore because they don't work here. This is where we have to come up with some other way of being. And to remain in that state it, or to remain in this, in this space of, um, of um, need uh, or of um, essential brokenness is in fact to remain in a space of possibility. This is making me, or what you're saying, JJ, is I've somehow been thinking how June, you at the beginning were talking about, or you brought in nightlife, how you do things in nightlife. And somehow I'm like nightlife spaces feel like often a space where that happened. Like if someone were to come in and be like, everyone needs to stop and like, I don't know, like if someone were to come in and try to like corral a group of people in a, in a queer club, that would be impossible. Or if everyone asks, like, use your library voices, it would be like, no, like those rules don't apply here. <laughs> you know, like, I don't know, somehow I feel like that, that, um, and, you know, being, a, it's a, you're allowed to be fucked up. You're allowed to be on psychedelics. Like you're allowed to be, um, I don't know, the rules are entirely different and there's almost like, and I mean, and especially in sex clubs or spaces that are really about like, we're doing the, the, yeah, we're doing the, the, the bad shit as it's known in, in normative society. So, yeah, I don't know. That's somehow so exciting to me that we, we do actually in some spaces, like some of that is, has long been happening. We've been creating those spaces. It's true. Um, I'll go to a sex club where like everyone asks my pronouns and I'm like, <laughs> this is the opposite of the normal world. <laughs> it's just, <laughs> and there's nothing broken about it, but I, I do think it, yeah, there's, there's something, it's just um, a different vocabulary. Yeah. It's not but, necessarily um, that it's broken, but there's a breakage in the norm that allows mm -hmm, that space yes. to occur. And I think that is the space where we're seeking those breakages in normativity. I mean, I think that's also, I'm reading right now, Gloria Ansel Dua's, um, what's it called? Yeah, Light in the Dark. And she's like such, for me, she's such a helpful person to think through um, that exactly that space of breakage or like what she sometimes calls wound is the space of imagination. Like literally, you have no need for imagination if you're conforming to the brightly lit up regular world. And that actually, if um, 
when you, when you aren't, it's like when you're not able to conform to that, then you have to look for other things. And that's when she, you know, sees a serpent out of the corner of her eye and decides that that can be part of her reality and doesn't have to be that she doesn't have to conform to the normative reality. Um, so somehow I feel like what, what you've been bringing in JJ for me feels like also this space, like that that's imagination. That's the, that's how we get to an imaginative space. It's like why I sometimes need to feel upset or bored in order to access, um, I don't know, something that's not in, not, uh, yeah. But that the thing is that like in the, within the normative, um, being bored or upset, that's something that needs fixing. Just like when someone is usually fucked up in a space, that's someone that needs fixing. They need to be removed from the space. And so that's why sort of nightlife is kind of relevant in the sense that like this is a room full of people that like would be regarded as people that need fixing or are broken in their current state, in their presentness. Which is yeah, interesting that we have these spaces actually. I, I think it's also, whilst we do have those spaces, it perhaps also worth thinking about how um, it's very, it, it can be very easy for um, normativity to develop in spaces that no. we create. Um, Definitely. We might think of like queer spaces or uh, artistic spaces as these spaces where we can be freer to create, but in fact that they, they very quickly establish rules, uh, expectations, um, pressures that we were talking about earlier. And so I think that in order for it to maintain its um, liveness or this ability to be um, a space of creativity, it has to constantly change. It has to still be ambiguous. It, it can't, it, it, it has to still refuse to become um, an established idea, I suppose. And so there is this, um, it's, not, it's not about constantly being on the move and constantly being running away or, or being a nomad. It's in fact, just a, a way of understanding that things grow and things that, and that, and that they change. And uh, um, we as humans do the same and we do it with also the rest of the world. So it's not, I don't think about saying that, why can't we have this space just for queer people, this space just for women. It's about saying that these spaces are only arbitrarily assigned and that they need to change always. That they always have to hold the potential for being a different kind of space. A space that, uh, that people who come to it need it to be yeah well that's what the turfs can't deal with exactly yeah yeah philosophically yeah. i mean yeah. this i'm also thinking like this plays out what you're describing plays out so acutely in improvisational dance context for me like it's an improvisation and then suddenly you realize everyone's doing the same thing because the person who set up the improvisation is actually modeling a particular way of moving. And if you're not moving in that particular way, then you're not doing the improvisation right, even though no one has said that. <laughs> and some somehow I find that even in myself, like when I'm in these group improvisational contexts, I start to feel like, oh no, like 
oh, clearly there's a norm here. I wasn't aware that there was a norm, but I can feel this kind of contagion of a norm happening. And then I find myself becoming less and less present and less and less improvisatory. And I have to always, I mean, it's literally something I have to check in on every time I'm in any improvisational dance workshop. I'm like, am I being present to what is actually arising for me? Or am I seeking to be seen and understood by this social space? Like, and it, yeah, it's, it's, and I, I guess I'm really curious, how do you facilitate that kind of, like, how can we set up an environment where we can actually improvise and we can like continuously disrupt norms and like not accidentally create them? Yeah. Yeah. I'm um, just thinking of, of, I'm thinking about the club night that I've been doing and um, how people have been responding to it. And I had a conversation with um, like a way more, experienced uh sort of nightlife person who um uh djs and um they were talking to me about oh you know I, i've noticed uh, your sound and like the djs you book are very eclectic in that you know i've got might have someone playing gabba and then someone playing industrial and then someone playing like cantonese pop music and then someone playing like you know bit of screamy dark core after that and they were a bit like oh are you gonna find a sound <laughs> like is that marketable and I think I had a moment of like self-doubt but I was also just like oh I'm actually just really like happy with the way I'm doing things and I'm going to continue doing it this way but um it, it, yeah I think it comes back to what JJ was saying about how like so many w within sort of queerness and within um gay queer spaces um conformity like finds itself just like the conformity finds itself in the sort of improvisational dance it, 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 it like things kind of align themselves back into the way things are done and so if someone within those spaces is doing something that is a bit out of line people are going to pick up on it even if they are a queer dj or someone who's like you know um be viewed as someone that's highly queer it's just yeah quite interesting like how easy it is to like be spotted when you're not doing like the right thing <laughs> even if that's just booking djs yeah i think it, it's not it doesn't feel natural for us to uh, like abide by rules but it does feel natural for us to follow patterns mm -hmm. and yeah. so we do that quite naturally and they become these established ways of being i think and i think that's such a the improvised dance is such a good it's is such a good example because even i can imagine turning up at a club and everybody's dancing the same way but also this is a, applicable to much larger situations if we think about what we refer to as the art world in general, there is a kind of uh, a sense that everybody is improvising, everybody is is doing their own thing. There is an uh, individual uniqueness to everybody's practice, whether they're a curator or a director of a museum or an artist or um, an art worker or an art technician. And there is this there is there is this sense that these individuals contribute in different ways, but that actually what is recognized or is valued in this in this world in within the hierarchy of the art world is a very particular kind of movement a very particular kind of body mm -hmm. Definitely. and it's very evident that, that that there is not only been uh, a kind of improvised 
choreography that nobody can quite identify who the choreographer is, but that also there is a there, there is uh, this uh, kind of quasi mystical casting director um, <laughs> yeah. that is kind of divided between us, and and I feel kind of. Uh, uncomfortable saying that because I recognize that I am part of that art world and that I actually have quite a loud voice in that and that um, and perhaps that's because uh, I've held on to that title of artist and maybe if I was doing all these other things and instead calling myself something else that I wouldn't I wouldn't be able to do that in, a, in an art world context it's a it, it's a kind of protest move to continually claim that what I do is 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 artwork um, even if it's something that goes against every every logic of art making which is to not make art <laughs> I also I, I'm thinking too though that like no matter what we do the like institutions want to immediately glom on to like so even the thing that is truly radical in in for like a microsecond will immediately be glommed onto by an institution and and made to be said like oh no that's oh that's cool we see that now that's part of the you know dominant art world institutional culture like i see that happen over and over and over again we're like People are doing radical things. The institution wants to say like, hey, can we get in on the radical thing you're doing? And in that moment, that's a really challenging negotiation because, you know, the person who's doing the radical thing has the challenging choice of probably saying yes or no to material resources. And so like when I think about how to name things, um, or like, I guess I'm trying to think a lot about that moment, like that moment when the when the institution wants to come and say like, okay, you wanna be with us or against us. And I think it gets really challenging because then it's like, it's again, this kind of like um, politics of negation, like challenge where it's like, I'm always existing in relation to the dominant thing or the institution or whatever it may be, the gender binary and um, yeah, I guess I'm just like, God, I really wish that it wasn't still dictated by that institutional power. And like, how can I escape that? And of course I like find ways, but I still feel like over and over again, I don't know, lately I'm feeling like it's really not escapable. And so, or the only way I do escape it is actually this, um, practice of kind of spirituality or accessing something that feels um, beyond this moment. And which is also a kind of fiction. Sometimes I feel like, oh, I'm doing that to make myself feel better about the challenging situation I'm constantly put in. And I'm put in this situation way less than other people are, you know? So yeah, I guess I'm just trying to name that like, um, I guess I'm confused about where when we ever actually have power and I feel like the temporality of that power is like really short-lived it's like for a second and then it's taken but I think that's also what is the problem with 
uh, kind of politics of representation is that that they and that they are perceived also as you know when when that happens you your body is useful for a certain amount of time to the organization and then it's no longer useful anymore so having a seat at the table is not um an indication that you hold power but also i think that at least for me and what i'd like to propose also to 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 everybody is that is that we could, we really should be moving on from from this idea of asking for a seat at the table because the people have had seats at the table and it it doesn't amount to anything and this is also my problem with the term inclusion for that exact reason because i don't feel like i want to participate in those hierarchies of power that already exist because i know that those those uh, hierarchies are uh, the source of a, of great inequality so why should i want to participate in this kind of um structure you know i think that i would much rather be part of something else something that maybe maybe doesn't exist yet maybe that is still within our heads or maybe is some kind of like like dream but the i would rather work to establish something that is other than what we have than to um spend my time participating in something that i don't that i fundamentally know that i don't agree with and that might sound really idealistic because i still sometimes need to uh participate or work with institutions in order to get things done um and maybe that is a kind of steal stealing of resources if moton would say that it was a kind of stealing from the institution but the i really don't care i care for being uh in a system that only allows me to participate if i um also desire to be superior than other people the the demands that, that having a seat at the table is to, dim, to is to also assert that you are better than some other people and i don't wish to participate in that kind of um structured way of thinking because really it's it's um the it's a process really of um um i don't know whether it's synchronizing or whether it's in fact mimicking the very thing that you think is the problem and so my interactions with institutions is um somehow one that is very um backhanded and that they also know that that backhandedness is quite important to them because they want to be perceived as forward thinking and so there there is an exchange going on that we have very different uh intentions but that we require each other i need their resources they need my um face to say that their 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 department is more radical than other <laughs> departments <laughs> but that my participation in the in with an art gallery or with a university is that i hope to be working towards a different kind of thing that might take over from 
what we currently think of as the art institution or that we currently think of as the university. And this is really the way that um, I think we can all then allow ourselves to steal and allow ourselves still to do things, but that we also are in the process of doing that, creating opportunities for ourselves to invent something else. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think I, I think it does. I think what you're saying is that we're finding ways to replace these structures while in the process of stealing from them, yeah? <laughs> exactly, yeah, because I don't care to be, I don't care to be, my body doesn't want to be treated like a cisgendered white man because <laughs> it's not that. And um, it, it's, it's not that and it never will be that. And to be that, to, to want that is to want to be uh, superior to the, your neighbours and to other beings in the world. And that is not what my body desires or needs. And so I don't, don't wish to participate in society as though I was a, a cisgendered white man. And I think that there is some kind of weird idea in the world that that is what, um, that is what I want mm. when I demand uh, an, an equality of, in society. That people think that, oh, well, they just want to be, uh, they just want to have the same things as us. They definitely think yeah. that. I think cisgender people think that about trans people as well. Absolutely. I think there's a, an idea that um, trans people want cisgender bodies. Mm. And that's why there's a very concrete idea of um, trans people being very concrete about gender and, and, and bodies and modifications. And that's something that they're, they've made up about us, actually, because of all the trans people I've met, none of them actually fulfill that. But there's this very strong idea about, you know, that they just want to be like us, um, you know? Absolutely. I think Bizarre. you're right. Yeah, I totally agree with that. They think that, 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 that there's a desire to be, to live a kind of um, normal gendered life, to get married, have uh, two children and to live in yeah and to have like you know like genitals that look like their genitals and like Mm -hmm. bodies that look like their bodies it's like it's not generally the case which I mean I do think like like the gay rights movement in the U.S. is like a sad example where there were some loud voices who did want like to live a regular I don't know like a married nuclear family life and then somehow everything we're talking about now is like got erased of it for a while. And I think it's coming back, but I'm just like, like y'all are totally right. I, I feel like there's this sense that everyone wants the normative thing, which is like actually the opposite of the truth. But then, but I do, I do think there are queer people or I don't even know if they should be called queer, but like people with divergent sexual or gendered practices who, um, somehow do want that to, to, to become one with the norm. And then that's such an opportunity for the dominant culture to be like, see, they do want what we have and, and we'll give them that. And then that sort of helps us forget that like rights are being denied, that people aren't actually able to live truly more divergent lives. 
But again, I wonder whether that is a pressure or a desire. Oh, it's a pressure. You're right. I don't, you're right. I, it's not fair to say it's a desire maybe, but I, I, yeah. I think witnessing that history, I just feel frustration too, where I'm like, there's like a, yeah, I don't know. It feels really counter to exactly what, what I thought people would have done. It's counter to improvisation for sure. There's no movement possible coming out of that choreography. <laughs> if we're going back to our metaphor. Yeah. Um, it is easier to live uh, by um, the way that you are assumed to live. Mm -hmm. And live it, live it, you know, there is, there is now an image of transness that people have in their imaginations and that they, uh, and that um, is a normalized image of transness. And that to um, be trans and not be that creates things that become difficult, become that it could, um, it could mean that you are um, at risk of violence towards you, or it could mean that you um, have to, um, that your movements are restricted in other ways, that you endanger yourself. And so to, um, you know, I just think that sometimes when I walk down the street, um, I just look like a man and I don't get the same response from people. I get a different response. And it, it, it's easier, it's easier to walk down the street as that. It's easier when um, a stranger knocks at the door for me not to demand that they use uh, my chosen pronouns because I don't know who that is. And, but to insist on it is to um, create a moment where people are like, oh, okay, um, and they have to think about it. And then they re respond on what, they, what, what comes into their head at that moment. So I think that the pressure of all of that is also what creates um, a, a sense perhaps that people would want to live that way or have a desire to live that way. Uh, but in fact, they just want to be able to live They just want to be able to be. And the, the current way that uh, human imagination works and the, the patterns that human imagination follows does not yet have the logic for people to uh, think outside of the ways that they have learned that the world should be. And I think that is at least what we should be um, asking people to think about because much of the, the work of um, visibilizing um, queerness or transness is simply just to say that we exist. But also I think the real work is about um, creating methodologies for people to see beyond the politics of, of recognition 
just to see beyond the way that they think that the world is structured. And that opens lots of possibilities for other kinds of imagination too, not just gendered imagination, but also allows us to think beyond race, to acknowledge that each one of us carries with us the knowledges that we had before, that they are not the same, that we exist in different temporalities. And I think that that is um, what, at least, I mean, maybe that's answer to your previous question about what, what, what do we do? What do we do about it? And, um, and that's something that I think we can do as people who um, have just asserted that we are creative practitioners, no matter what. Because that's, a, that's something that we just decided that we had to do. Now, I don't know if, I don't know how that works in practice, but. <laughs> well, I've been thinking as you're speaking that that for me comes back to this sense of silence or this sense of like, like I'm thinking, how do I do that? How have I done that? When have I felt that? Because I am someone who I think so easily can get swayed by the ease of conformity. I feel this in my gender. I feel this in my sexual practices. I feel this in my relational practice, like so much of that. And so in practice, I've really, the only way I can work against that ease or, or really insist on like, wait a minute, what do I want? Not what's easiest for me, but what do I want is to sit in silence, like with my body away from the rhetoric and away from kind of recede, frankly, from public life in a way because so much of public life is where those decisions are made for me, where the ease becomes really present in my body. So to actually say like, okay, actually I need to be alone. I need to not speak. I need to not declare anything yet. I need to just be in a practice of sensing and sense like being with my senses. Yeah. The, I don't know if that refusal to like participate, feels for me like one of the only ways I've been able to clarify what I actually want and how I actually want to be. It's like closing your eyes. I, I was just thinking about the improvisation. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I'm, I gotta be a little bit like I can't. And then what gets hard is like, I figure something out and then it's like, okay, now I'm going to go into the world and I have to fucking stay true to that. And that is the hard work of living for me. It's quite spiritual, I think, what you just described, that process. Certainly, yeah. Yeah, it, 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 for me, it, it's like bringing everything back to the body um, and the senses. And I think that's really valuable. I don't know. It, it makes complete sense to me as well. But I, I'm someone that's very embodied as, in, in what I do. So I think um, I definitely relate to what you're saying. I think it makes you tired though, like cumulatively to be pushing back in so many parts of life. Yeah. It's like, I'm just thinking of the Sarah Shulman quote again, and it's like, if you're standing still and you're trying to regroup and there's a lot of motion in the opposite direction, that's going to wear you down. Mm. 
yeah you can't continue to stay still so yeah I, I think for me it's like really forming a, a an image of someone who's really tired um well and that's why I feel like solidarity becomes so important our kinship becomes so important because if there's other people standing still next to each, like I take that image and I'm like oh if there's another person shoulder to shoulder with me then we're a lot stronger against that I mean wow it sounds like a protest and it is in a way uh, something we mentioned earlier was to think about that stillness also as a movement or to think about silence also as a kind of speech and I think maybe that that we can think about if we think about the stillness or um, as also a kind of choreographed gesture that that also allows us to think about what we want that stillness to be and that stillness can also exist in you know we we don't need to think about it as solidified we don't need to think about it as solid we can think about it as one of the words you used earlier elena was fluid and that if i think about fluidity it can sometimes be hot and sometimes be cold sometimes be frozen sometimes be steam and there is this um, not only um a uh possibility for modal transition but that it then can take up different forms of resistance sometimes it's uh, a form that can be moved through that just exists in the air sometimes it has to stand in, in a foot in a firm position that it can't be punctured that it has to be in a front other times it just kind of floods the uh, atmosphere and that maybe this is the kind of uh, of responsive choreography that we can have that that it's not a physical stillness in fact it's very it's very alive and moving but it's just a material um affirmation to say this is we are here materially embodied and that we will move and sh shift and dance in ways that um will occupy the space and I'm using words from protest here because I think that it's this there's something quite um, uh, relevant about the idea of protest and um, thinking about this sense of everyday resistance think perhaps about that walk down the street it, when I dress and act and walk in the way that I want to as a protest and that some days that protest is harder than others and so some days I give in and I walk down the street, not in protest, but there is a, a, that I am in some kind of um, acceptable costume um, because it's easier. And I think that um, that is a, a kind of perpetual labor as well. That, that we've got to know that the, this, it's a system that drains our bodies of labor so that we, we don't um, invent something new. <laughs> yeah. I'm feeling that's a really nice place to end. But maybe that's just me. Yeah, no, I'm feeling that as well.
The Satellizer project is realised using funds from the National Lottery through Arts Council England, Bonnybird Choreography Fund and John Elliman Foundation through Continuous Network. Continuous is a partnership between Siobhan Davies Studios and Baltic Centre for Contemporary Art. You can find out more by visiting continuousdance.com.